Genesis chapter 49, verse 29 through chapter 50, verse 26 is our scripture reading today. Hear the voice of God. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. The Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I had dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning for the Egyptian, of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, his property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for the, all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the infallible, inerrant word of the holy God. May he imprint its eternal truths upon our hearts. You may be seated, and children can be dismissed to their classes. Often when there is an epilogue, an ending to a story, it's just a few things, a few facts tied together. What is unique about this ending to the story of Joseph and Jacob is that it's a lot of stuff in here. And there's a lot of things that we could consider and think about, and we won't be able to hit it all today. I encourage you, keep reading, keep studying, go back and read through Genesis. This is the final sermon in Genesis for our Sunday worship series. Not that we'll never revisit it again, but for now we're taking a break from Genesis, this first book. Thank you for your prayers, your encouragement, support that has enabled me to minister God's Word with thoroughness over these last couple years. I also want to just say a true heartfelt thank you for your um, eager, expecting engagement at what at times has been sometimes long and daunting texts of Scripture in Genesis some very long passages, some very dark things, some confusing things have come up. Thank you for your encouragement and all the engagements. As we transition, though, from Genesis 2 on Sunday morning to the New Testament in teaching here at Grace, I, I want to just briefly mention an, an, that I'm hoping and praying for the following three things to hopefully have happened during our study of Genesis. First, that we as the church here are better equipped to read and comprehend the whole of God's Word because we have spent some time on the foundational element in all of the Scripture. Don't forget that Genesis is foundational. Everything that we read, the doctrines of the gospel, of Christ, of the church, all of it has foundations in the principles found in Genesis. So I hope we'll be better equipped to read all of the Word because of this. Secondly, um, I hope that and pray that, that we would have an accurate and a precious knowledge of God. Know God, love God, serve God. That's the order in which we grow. And the hope is that as we've gone through Genesis, that, that you and I, that we actually know God more from this story. Not that we know about the people, but we know God. His goodness in these narratives, his authority, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, 
We would know God and be strengthened in our faith from it. And then ultimately, my prayer is that from our study of Genesis that we're going to be finishing, and this will be the theme of the text today, that we would truly develop as God's people a deeper and fuller affection for Jesus Christ. I've said it, Pastor Caleb has said it, um, we know the Bible's about Jesus, Genesis is about Jesus. Genesis points us toward Christ over and over and over again. And so I pray that Christ and who he is and what he does and the perfection of our Redeemer would be imprinted continually in our hearts from this study. Now to this text particularly. It is fitting that Genesis, the story of beginnings, the story that began with the creation of everything and life, the garden of God, concludes with great sadness and lament. I don't know if you noticed from the reading, but death and burial is the theme of this text. It's, we, we actually have in a short period of Scripture, comparatively what we've had and seen in bigger texts, we have the death of two patriarchs recorded for us. Jacob and Joseph. And the word that is most repeated in the end of 49 and 50 is the word buried. Buried, and so he buried, and so he buried, and he buried. And it ends, the text ends with, so Joseph died. Now, why do I say that's fitting? Because when the story began, our story began. In God's creation of humanity, it began with the promise of fruitfulness, life, abundance. But it was immediately affected by the rebellion of humanity. And God had said, That when you rebel against me in the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And if there's one thing we've learned through the story of Genesis, it's that God has been fulfilling that promise in humanity. The soul that sins, it shall die. It is fitting because it brings a great encapsulation. And though there is words of hope in this text, it does seem a little bit dark. The death of two individuals, the end of an era, and Exodus, which begins right after that is, and now they're plunging eventually here into slavery and oppression. Sin kills. It does. And we should hate sin, and we should hate death, the last enemy, while recognizing, which we're going to see today in the text, that God has chosen the last enemy to be the means of our deliverance. Getting ahead of myself with that. Death is the theme. It be, text begins with Jacob, the patriarch, giving his last wishes to his sons. They must promise to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rachel and Leah's wife is buried. Uh, um, I'm sorry, Leah and Re- Isaac and Rebekah. Leah, his wife, is married. Rachel is buried um, near Bethlehem. Uh, And this is very important because it's repeated over and over again. And Jacob wants us to know it and think about it. This was purchased. This was purchased by Ephron the Hittite. This is the field that was purchased. In other words, he's saying we, we don't own this by squatter's rights, nor do we own it through conquest. 
We purchased it. Abraham purchased it. Way back when God sent him here. It's our place. So go bury me there. And he makes them swear. And he won't die until they swear they're going to bury him there. Bury me where my descendants will live. Is essentially what he's saying. Now most of the text, the details of the text, revolve around this impressive funeral that follows these last wishes. Jacob was indeed a sinful man, but he was a man who had been saved by grace. And God had richly blessed him, though his years were few and evil, as he describes. And his funeral expresses that grace well. His body is embalmed in 40 days as the customary mourning period in Egypt, but they mourn 70. He is the father of the savior of Egypt, right? Joseph. And so the Egyptians are reverencing him. And though it seems like we have little written about him in Egypt, the 17 years that he lived in Egypt, we don't have much about that, but Jacob had become celebrated for his wisdom and insight as one, the pagans might say, is blessed by the gods. And after the period of mourning, all Israel, except the little ones and their animals, they sojourn back to Canaan to bury Jacob. What a procession. More than 70 now, right? Because fed people grow up, have kids and kids. But what's more impressive, the entire royal court of Pharaoh goes back. So great of a funeral procession, a long funeral procession, by the way. So great is the funeral procession, it says chariots and horsemen. Basically, he is escorted by the most powerful military in the ancient Middle Eastern world. And they're all going up more. So significant is this funeral that the Canaanites, who were no slouches themselves in impressive cities all basically stand in awe as they see this great mourning procession come through. This is more than a couple of cars at the end of a guy's life following the cop car down to the cemetery. This is a big deal. The Bible says it's a great gathering. But here's what's interesting. I don't know if you noticed or paid much attention to the little detail. They're going to the cave of Machpelah. Now, where is this? This is near Hebron, which is... South of Jerusalem, um, near the Dead Sea, or actually south and uh, east of the Dead Sea. It's where Abraham settled, where he lived most of his life, where Isaac lived most of his life, and where Jacob apparently lived most of his life until he moved to Egypt. So it's kind of the, the foundation. The patriarch's homeland is Hebron. And that's where the cave is purchased. That's where they, that's where they were buried. It's, this is their plot. Not just their burial, but it's their life. It's where they live. But what's interesting is that it says that they go in this procession up to this area called the threshing floor of Atad or the threshing floor of thorns. And we have no idea where this threshing floor is. There's no, no name for it today. Its name did not last. The, the Canaanites called it Abel Mizraim after this, which basically means Egyptian mourning because of what's happening here. The Canaanites name it that. It gets a new name because of this. But we have no idea where Abel Mizraim is or where um, this... Uh, threshing floor of Atad is where they pause for some reason for seven days and mourn before then journeying down into uh, to Hebron. 
What makes it unique, now by the way, because we don't know, and as you know, and you've probably learned from our study in Genesis, when the less information we have about something, the more things people write about it. And so there's all sorts of theories as to where this is and what it's all about. What's interesting is a phrase that's mentioned twice, and that phrase is that it locates this place as beyond the Jordan. Now that phrase is almost exclu- it is exclusively used throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, as a reference to the area near the Jordan River, either on the east or west side, of, but it's near the Jordan River. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus was baptized, the phrase is used, beyond the Jordan. Um, it can be anywhere north to the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea, but somewhere there. But here's what's fascinating, that's nowhere near Hebron. In fact, it's way past Hebron in Israel, the Jordan River. So it'd be a really weird procession to basically drive uh, hundreds of miles to a procession, past the cemetery by, by about 30, 40 miles, do a U- stop for seven days, do a U-turn and come back. That doesn't make any sense. So what's going on? Why did this happen? Well, since everybody has theories, I have a theory too. Um, it's a theory. My first thought was maybe this is Bethel. That's in the area beyond the Jordan. We know that's always the place. Abraham came up out of Egypt to Bethel to worship God, and Isaac and Jacob. Bethel's really important. But I think the biblical author would have said Bethel because that he always does. I don't think that's it. But beyond the Jordan probably means this area right next to the Jordan River. And if they were to, instead of going straight up to Beersheba and Hebron, if they were to come around and come, which the Egyptians had lots of holdings, by the way. During the famine, Egypt got, became the power of the Canaanite region too. Came around and kind of came at the Jordan River from the east side, right near this little town called Jericho, which is beyond the Jordan. And then they could just come down in a circle down to Hebron, kind of like this loop. Now, why they would go that way, some scholars suggest, because... Pharaoh's military is also checking on some of their places, their, 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 their holdings, to just do some kind of make it a work trip to sort of idea, perhaps. But isn't it also fascinating, and this is a theory, that we know that there is the children of Israel, hundreds of years later, will come out of Egypt, and instead of taking the direct route straight on up, they'll kind of go down in this wilderness, they'll come around, and they'll stop for seven days at the Jordan River, until the walls of Jericho fall down, and then they'll cross into the land. My theory is that we are seeing a foreshadowing, which we've seen a bunch of times throughout Genesis, of the Exodus. That they're taking the route. Now, they're not wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, but they're taking the route of the Exodus. And they're pausing for seven days at the Jordan, perhaps to mourn, but also to remember, because Jacob has said multiple times, and Joseph will say, you will come back up. You will come here. This will be your place. And in faith, they're foreshadowing, perhaps even more than they know, the Exodus journey that's soon to happen. That's my theory. You can take it or leave it or do what you want with it. They come down to Machpelah. The Canaanites are amazed at this procession. And then... Joseph buries his father. Fast forward to the end of the text. We have another death. In fact, 
Like I said, this strange little part in the middle we're going to pause on in a, in a moment is kind of inclusio, or it's surrounded by death. Jacob's death and Joseph's death. So now we have Joseph's death. And it's remarkably similar to Jacob's death. He makes them promise, promise you will bury my bones where my descendants are. But they're not there. They will be. And he says it twice. God will visit you. God will remember you. He will bring you back there. And I don't want to be left behind even if it's just bones. We could take the time to look, but this is exactly what happens hundreds of years later when the Israelites are escape Egypt, the mighty hand of God. They break into the, the pyramid, probably like tomb of Joseph and steal his bones out and take them up with them. The confidence, the expression of faith that each of these old men have as they cross the river of death that this is not my final resting place. Egypt is not where I end up. My story doesn't end in Egypt. My story ends in the land of God's promise. That's what we see. A curious phrase is used when Jacob dies. Did you notice that at the end of 33? When Jacob dies, he draws up his feet into the bed breathes his last, and was gathered to his people. When we talk about death, we almost always refer to somebody departing, to leaving their people, to leaving their family. And that's why we lament and mourn. But when the scripture speaks of Jacob's death, it doesn't talk about him leaving people, it talks about him going to people. It talks about him finally settling with his people. And this is true, beloved Christian. Our death is more of a gathering to than it is a leaving of. Indeed, we do, we will leave some people. But we are gathered to our people in death. And though, so though death is the theme and there's this mourning and weeping that's constantly overshadowing this end of Genesis and I said a fitting kind of conclusion to the creation of life and the curse and the, the fall, even though that's true, even in the death, all these little phrases are constantly bursting with expression of hope and reality and confidence that even though sin is an enemy, rebellion is an enemy, and the last enemy is death that hits every one of us, we are going to die. You and I are going to die. Some of us sooner than others, and we really don't know who that is. It is for the believer. It is not death to die. There's a hymn. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. 
Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. And this is why Jacob pulls his feet up, breathes his last, and is gathered to his people. And this is why Joseph says, when God visits you again, take my bones. Because Joseph knows that those bones will one day reanimate with flesh surrounding them. Even Job in the Old Testament, who was probably a contemporary with these patriarchs, speaks of the resurrection of his flesh. Though he dies, he says, I know I will see my Redeemer. I, in the latter day, I will stand and see him with eyes. This is the curious thing that the middle part of the text actually addresses, roundabout way. How is it that humanity's greatest and last enemy becomes God's greatest vehicle for gathering his people to himself? How is it that the believer can rejoice even in the morning of death? How is it that Joseph can weep and lament and rejoice at the same time? That is the most important question that any of us would answer. Is how can I see the enemy become, as it were, my friend? Because for the believer, that's what death is. It's the enemy become our friend. How does that happen? Well, we get a little bit of understanding. Put that on the shelf for now. And let's jump into this middle part of the text. Something happens between the death of Jacob and Joseph. And what happens is that Joseph's brothers get quite nervous. Jacob dies. Now, timeline, this is 17 years after uh, he has been reunited to Joseph. So 17 years has passed between the whole the brothers finding out that who Joseph is and them coming to him and him saying, basically, I forgive you. I won't seek revenge on you. 17 years later, as soon as Jacob dies, they're all nervous and they're saying, oh, now we're done for. Um, Dad's dead. Joseph's finally going to get the revenge he's been plotting all this time. So, in their fear they send messengers to Joseph. It's kind of weird for us to send a messenger to a family member when you live in the same place. And these messengers come and it's just filled with a deep burden. Before your father died, he commanded, saying, pleading with, on the basis of Jacob, Dad made you promise, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers in their sin, for they did evil to you. Then they come themselves, and they bow in front of Joseph, kind of like the dream Joseph had so many years before. And they say, we're your servants. Have you noticed that all through this story of Joseph, Nearly every chapter since the brothers started coming back, we've had multiple expressions of Joseph weeping. 
More is said about Joseph weeping than, and he weeps more than any other person in the Old Testament besides Jeremiah. Um, always Joseph weeps. Joseph weeps. Is he a weak man? Not at all. He's the vizier of Egypt. He's humbled. He's got a lot of scars. But what's the most fascinating, it makes sense when he weeps when his father dies. It makes sense when he weeps when his brothers reconcile. It makes sense with all of that. But he weeps when his brothers come to him and say and speak before him. He weeps when the messengers ask. Why does he weep here? I mean, I don't know if we can be 100% sure why. Is it just the emotion of everything happening with his father's death? Or, or perhaps he's um, weeping just because he just, he's gotten good at it? I don't know. But I actually believe the reason he weeps is that Joseph appears to be burdened. That his brothers have been unable to unburden themselves from their sins. He weeps because they're still burdened 17 years later. I think that's what's happening because of what he says next when it says he had compassion on them and spoke kindly to them. I think what's happening here is Joseph is saying, really? You think that of me? You think that 17 years later that I'm going to try to get revenge on you? You guys don't get forgiveness, do you? You guys don't get mercy and grace, do you? What he does here is fascinating. The last or the final part of Joseph's story is Joseph, the victim, comforting the offender. That's crazy. Who would forgive like that? I mean, I probably would be like, well, I hadn't thought about it for the last 17 years, but you're right, dad is dead. Hmm. You make some good points. But he doesn't. In fact, there are three descriptions of Joseph here that I think are so powerful. The first one is the expression of his compassion. His words to them are this, Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. You notice that last phrase at the end of what it does as he spoke kindly to them? That exact phrase is used at the beginning of the Joseph stories. And it's describing his brothers, and it says, they could not speak kindly to him. And now we have the story come full circle. They couldn't speak kindly to him, and now he speaks kindly to them. The compassion being expressed here. Joseph is urging them to unburden themselves from their wrongs. Not because... Well, it wasn't a big deal. Bygones are bygones. I've forgotten all about that. That wasn't, wasn't that. He's urging them to unburden themselves from their own burden of sin and guilt because he is compassionate. Because he feels for them. 
They're afraid, and that bothers him. He's like, no, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Compassion. Second expression of Joseph here is humility. He then says, am I in the place of God? To the brothers, in a way, yes. I mean, not in a redemptive way, but he's second in command in Egypt. He actually has the authority and the power to imprison all of them or to put them to death or whatever he wants, which is why they're pleading with him. Because in their brains, in their minds, it's like, in a sense, yeah, you are in the place of God. I mean, you speak for God for us. In fact, whatever you say, we have to do. But Joseph doesn't view himself that way. Am I in the place of God? Whatever authority, whatever righteousness, whatever uh, power Joseph possesses, he understands that it is from God to him that he does not speak for God, nor does he seek vengeance for God. Whatever grace he has received from God is meant to be passed on to others. This isn't the point of the text, and I don't want to get too much application yet. But let that sink in for a moment, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever grace and mercy we have received from God is meant to not end here, but to pass through us to others. Notably, those of the household of faith. This is why we bear all things, believe all things, endure all things. This is why we give one another the benefit of the doubt. Why when someone speaks a harsh word to us, we say, I don't think they really meant that that way. Not because we're better than them or because we've finally figured out the truth or they've proved themselves to be something or not, but because of the grace and mercy that has been given to us. And we are not in the place of God. Indeed, I would say that if I could just get a hold of this truth that God is God and I am not, I think I might grow a lot more. <laughs> Relational restoration the brothers and Joseph, indeed requires true confession and repentance from the guilty party. It does. We, we should not think that we can have restoration or reconciliation without repentance and confession. That has to be there. But that's on the guilty party's end. What must the offended party have for there to be restoration? Humility. Humility. Am I in the place of God? <laughs> Often when we refuse to reconcile with someone that has wronged us, the words going through our mind is, who do they think they are? That they would talk to me that way or do that to me or say that to me. Who do they think they are? But the real question we ought to be asking is, who do I think I am? Humility. We don't know the hearts and motives of one another. 
God does. We're not in the place of God. So compassion, humility, and then these words have resonated with me in my Christian walk over and over and over again. Confidence. Confidence in what? Joseph expresses confidence in God's sovereignty. And he says it this way, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now he gets to see what that good is in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And of course, he's speaking of the idea, well, you meant evil when you sold me to those Ishmaelites, when you threatened to kill me, when I was crying and you did not listen to my pleadings. You meant evil. You had evil intentions, evil heart, and evil actions. And I fully recognize that. He's not saying, oh, you guys meant well, or you just were mis-. He's No, you meant for evil. I get it. You were wicked. But your wickedness cannot dethrone God. And so he meant what you meant for evil to bring about good. And now I'm in Egypt, and now we have food, and now we have land. And this is a very difficult concept and a very tight line to walk. Joseph is not saying that God caused their wicked hearts and motives. Nor is he saying that God responded to their wicked hearts and motives. As if he was, well, I guess since they do this, I'll do this. Somewhere between that is where we're trying to land. What a profoundly beautiful and difficult theological statement. God hates evil. He hates wickedness and sin so much that he makes sin defeat sin. He makes evil kill evil. And he uses the evil. Not that he needs the sin or evil of mankind. But he uses the evil to produce salvation. Not in every scenario do we see it explicitly like here. Joseph saw the end. We often don't see the end. But the statement stands as truth. He will one day, as promised in the scripture, bring an end to all evil, sin, suffering, and wickedness. He will destroy it. But until that day, he turns evil against itself. He makes wickedness a traitor to its own cause. Rather than impugn God with evil himself, this elevates him as glorious above all evil and wickedness. He stands apart and aloof even from it. Now this calms my heart. Because when suffering grips me, knowing God is truly in charge even over the evil of other men's hearts urges me to pray not just that I would get out of the suffering 
but that God would help me see the good that he is intending to come through the suffering. And it can change how I pray, and it can change how I look at it. Instead of an escapist mentality, confidence in the sovereignty of God can give me a hopeful mentality in his power over and above all the wicked machinations of men and women. And thus, I don't have to become bitter because of the evils done against me. Because I can trust in a good and wise and perfect God that whatever they've done, He has already determined to turn in some way for good. This theme of God's sovereignty even over the evil choices of men, is not just the theme of Joseph's story, though it is the, probably the most predominant theme in the Joseph story, right? But in reality, this has become the theme, this is the theme of the book of Genesis from beginning to end. Satan meant it for evil. God produces good. Evil found a foothold in this world immediately after creation. And Satan and sinful people have been doing wicked and hurtful things ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. People have betrayed us, abandoned us, hurt us, lied to us, and we have done many of the same things to them. But whatever was done for and in evil, God has continually overridden bringing about good, notably his good covenant of promise of salvation through the Messiah. In fact, the greatest evil that Satan could conjure and execute was the crucifixion of the Son of Man himself. And yet, in a mysterious way, that is the greatest good that we could ever hope for. And if he can and does do that when it comes to the own gospel, the Messiah, the Christ, then is he not doing that in every evil and through every wicked choice of men? What can he not do? Acts 2, 22 through 24, Peter, in preaching a sermon, the first sermon preached of the church after the resurrection, Peter runs back in his mind to Joseph. You just sense it coming out when he preaches this, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's doing it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is what Peter preaches in his first sermon. His sermon is on God's sovereignty and Christ's grace. And it's this. You killed him. 
you with wicked hands crucified him. He's talking to actually people that literally were the ones doing it. It's like, but God in his sovereignty planned the whole thing out to where it brings life to you. Whatever evil that man can do, God is no responder. He is no, we'll see what happens sort of God. He is a God who sovereignly, skillfully, like a perfect surgeon, is taking even the evil done with horrible intent and righteously and sovereignly producing eternal life through it. This is how Jacob and Joseph can be buried with hope. Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the very evil thing that sin has brought in the decimation of this body will be the very vehicle through which I arrive into Christ's glory. So we don't have to fear it. But there is one final word that I want to give you from Genesis, and that is the Christological hope. As we close the study of Genesis, I wish to remind you, beloved, that this book is about Jesus, constantly. And so Genesis closes with Joseph as a type, and that simply means an intended illustration fulfilled in Jesus. And we've seen that already in some of our previous sermons. We've looked at all the ways in which Joseph, not all of them, but looked at a lot of them, the ways in which Joseph points us toward Christ. He's a type. He's, a, he's an image. He's an illustration of Jesus. We sang in the song. We could have, I suppose, had a verse. We probably should write one. Somebody should. Christ the true and better Joseph. Um, because it, like, he's one of the most obvious picture of Christ throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to go back and look at all of those. That's other sermons. But even in the end, in this little section sandwiched between death, we see the type of Christ or the picture of Christ here. Have we not all believers, Christians, have we not all, having been forgiven by Jesus, sin again and again and again, have we not become burdened that this time he won't forgive us? I mean, he shouldn't, right? I've done it a hundred times. One of these times he's going to say, you know what, I've given you plenty of chances. You don't seem to care that much, so I'm out. I don't think I'm speaking alone when I say that I have thought that often in my life. Have we not all been afraid that God would and should, quote, repay us for all the evil that we did to him? Have we not, like the sinful brothers, said to God, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for we did evil to you. But as Joseph yet better, for Joseph is but an image of the type, does not God reply, do not be afraid? 
That though we meant evil and intended sin, God has brought our good, our salvation through the evil done to Christ on the cross. Does he not continually promise, based upon his faithfulness and mercy, to provide salvation for us and our little ones? Does not God in Christ comfort and speak kindly to us, as we see here? And why? When we sin, we have an advocate with God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is better than Joseph, because he is indeed in the place of God. And in his obedient life and sacrificial death, he pleads his righteousness, his sacrifice in our place. Are you battling assurance of God's acceptance of you, Christian? Are you doubting whether he'll look towards you this time with contempt rather than kindness? Are you fearful because you have sinned yet again in the same way as a hundred times before? And you try and this, and you set up all these things to stop it from happening over and over again. So this time, he's finally going to turn away and say, you know what, I've had enough. If, if you're there, beloved, don't look within yourself for assurance and hope. Don't recount your last week and say, well, I did some good things. Well, I, this time I repented a lot sooner than last time, so I guess that you know, he's, he, he can be gracious toward me. Stop looking inside yourself for assurance. Stop looking at your hands and your works for assurance. There is no hope to be found there. Don't look at your efforts and your sincerity to assuage your doubts. Look instead upon the one who suffered the greatest evil, became sin for you, absorbed all your vile uncleanness and demonic darkness so that the righteous wrath of God could be finally and completely satisfied on him rather than on you. Find the assurance and confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone. Because in him, the Father is well pleased. All who are in him, upon you, the Father is well pleased.